when it comes to some of the big trends around what are what makes the best leaders, frankly, it's care. It's the sense of caring about people as human beings, first and foremost, you know, as the three-dimensional living flesh and blood humans full of everything that we are, messy and all, rather than just what can you do for me? What is the, your little two-dimensional position in this org chart box? Valuing, esteeming, respecting people as human beings is just part of their makeup. Now, can you learn some of this? Sure, you can learn it if you are committed to learning, just like can you be coached if you want to be. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work that's confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y Institute your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about the Y operating system and the Y Institute a little later on in the show. Jason, as you know, today's topic, leadership, is so very close to both of us, but it's, it's especially near and dear to my heart, so much so that about 20, well, actually almost 20 years ago, I decided to go back to school. I was in my 50s to get another degree. I deliberated between an MBA and a master's in leadership, but I followed my heart and chose leadership. And it was really one of the better decisions I've made as it allowed me also to teach leadership now as an adjunct. But one of my favorite thought leaders, leadership thought leaders, and probably one of the biggest influences that I had as I was developing my own approach to leadership was Warren Bennis. He wrote a book in 1989, or it was published in 1989, was called On Becoming a Leader. And in it, he wrote that experiencing struggle and hardship molds leaders, which sort of exemplifies growth mindset, which we also talk about a lot. The journey to becoming a leader comes a result of going through the process of self-discovery. This is a direct quote. Before people can learn to lead, they must learn something about the strange new world. Now, he wrote that, as I said, in 1989, and can only imagine what he'd be thinking today if we had an opportunity to, to chat with him. But we have another leader, Elaine Hunkins, who will be joining us in just a few minutes. But we are for sure living, definitely living in a strange new world, and there was unquestionably a need for leadership. Unfortunately, it seems that a lot of leaders are, are stuck in the past. They're looking at their past experiences and thinking that, hey, what happened in the past is a good roadmap for the future of work. I'm not so sure that's the best path. So we will be really digging deep into that subject today. But that leads me into what we call our perfect labor storm segment. So in each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Here's today's perfect labor storm. While we don't 
we probably don't need more evidence that we're living in strange times or experiencing a leadership void. This just released report from the Wall Street Journal reveals that Americans are really pulling back from our values, that we once defined our country. Over the last 25 years, patriotism has dropped 32%. Religion has dropped 23%. Having children has dropped 29%. And community involvement has dropped 35%. If we need to go another step deeper, another report revealed that 76% of business leaders reported work stress is interfering with their relationships. And 66% of leaders reported losing significant amounts of sleep over that stress. And then finally, according to the conference board, 46% of CEOs report that climate change is impacting their business or that it will in the next five years. And who knows what the number for AI disruption might be right now. Yeah, that's a lot to swallow, Ira. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that we're in some really turbulent times right now where we need great leadership to navigate us through. Even though we're, we're a show about preparing for the future work, sometimes there is such a thing as too much change in too short amount of time. Just yesterday, Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and over 1,200 other tech leaders signed an open letter requesting that all AI labs hit the pause button on training AI for it to be more powerful than the current GPT-4 version because the technology represents a profound change in the history of life on Earth, in their words. So they're wanting a six-month pause because of how much change is happening with this. In short, we need to get governance and oversight in place pronto for a gradual rollout of these capabilities over time. And this took me back to, I think, back to college and some of the major advances that were happening at that time for me from 98 to 02. There were three of them. Napster came out. College kids like me, many times, was the first time we had access to high-speed internet was when we went to college because we still had dial-up internet at home. And boy, oh boy, as soon as we got to college, it was how can we share and rip as many songs from other people on the internet as possible? And Napster provided that opportunity. And also DVDs came out when I was an undergrad. And so moving from VHS to DVD thought there's no way that we're ever going to get better high definition than we will on a DVD. And then also the advent of mobile phones really started to proliferate when I was in school. So Nokia and Motorola in particular were ones that a lot of people had. All of those took some getting used to, but they were spread out enough and there was enough time that we all were able to adapt and learn to these new technologies gradually over time. But those things are just a speck of dust compared to the whirlwind of what we've just experienced here since November of 2022, so just five months of there being AI open to the public. And this is why effective leadership has never been more important to have in every aspect of our businesses and public institutions. And so as we crack the leadership code today with renowned leadership consultant, Alain Hunkins, I can't wait to hear how he's sorting through all of this shifting landscape and helping business leaders do the same. So briefly, before we bring it on, here's a little bit about Alain and his work. He helps high achieving people become high achieving leaders. Over his 20 year career, he's worked with over 2000 groups of leaders in 25 countries. Clients include Walmart. Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm Insurance, IBM, General Motors, and Microsoft. And in addition to being a leadership speaker, consultant, trainer, and coach, he's also the author of what we'll be talking about today, Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. 
and it was endorsed by leadership luminaries like Jim Cousins, Barry Posner, and Marshall Goldsmith. It's also a faculty member of Duke Corporate Education, and his writing has been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, Chief Executive, Chief Learning Officer, and Business Insider. So without further ado, let's give a warm Googleization nation welcome to Alain Hunkins. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Iris. Great to be with you today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as you heard at the top here, we've got a lot to talk about. So much is changing in the world. And so, you know, before we get into those things, let's just get to know you a little bit and, and your leadership journey of why you're so passionate about this. So tell us your journey of of why you became passionate about this topic of leadership development. Sure, happy to. So for me, I think about at its core, leadership is just about the most fundamental human behavior that we have. I think about it, all of us, and I'm not talking about titles, you know, are you the CEO or the, I'm just talking about in life, every single day we wake up and hopefully get out of bed. <laughs> every single day when we wake up, we have an opportunity to lead ourselves first and foremost, and then lead others around us. And I like to think of every single day as this blank canvas. And the fact is what I think great leaders do is that they are intentional about how do they go out in the world and lead. And so my work has been very much about demystifying, you know, kind of taking leadership off of the pedestal and not just democratizing it. You know, it's not just for a few rare select people, but it's actually for all of us. And not only that, but it actually turns out that the skills of leadership can be broken down into kind of three, what I call the meta skills, right? Connection, communication, and collaboration. And for me, I guess the driving my why has always been, why do people do what they do? What motivates people? And I think part of that, you know, can't really escape your family of origin, right? That's the first organization that you're ever a part of. Certainly I was ever a part of. And so as I think back to my own journey, uh, it's in some ways pretty unique. So I grew up in New York City. It's not particularly unique. And I grew up, I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother, also not particularly unique. I have an older brother, not unique. But the unique little flavor to my family's origin story for me is that both my mother and my grandmother who raised me are both Holocaust survivors. So my mother was actually seven years old when the Nazis invaded Belgium, where she was born. And from the time she was seven until she was 10, she was actually hidden through the Belgian underground and separated from her mother. Now, I've got kids. I know you've got kids. It's the sense of, can you imagine having a seven-year-old ripped out of your life and have to go hide for their lives for three years? I mean, I understand this is my family, and still, it's just mind-boggling to me. So my mother, and amazingly, my grandmother, who was arrested and put in a concentration camp and liberated, they both survived, amazingly. Beat the odds. Not like the rest of the family, but like, like many people. But as you can imagine, that trauma, that experience completely shaped the way they saw the world. And so life at home for me growing up in New York City in the 1970s and 1980s was very different at home than it was when I was at school or at friends' houses. And I think early on, you know, I was the younger brother. I was the one trying to figure out the family dynamics as younger siblings tend to do. And so for me, I've always been really interested in why do some people operate in this way? Why do other people operate in this way? And so that led me into studying psychology. I went on, I ended up going on to go, I went to a liberal arts undergrad. I have an MFA. I went to a theater conservatory, master's in fine arts from an acting school. So talk about holding the mirror up to yourself and literally breaking down human behavior to the point where, for example, accents realizing. So if you want to speak with a British accent, you can break down vowels. So if you go from saying all in American English to all or 
O to O, and all before you know it, you're speaking with a certain accent. And realizing all these things can be broken down to subcategories. And so that led me into educational consulting, working, doing arts and education work and leadership training in schools in New York City. A friend of mine that I knew said, hey, have you ever thought about doing work in businesses? Businesses? No, I hadn't really thought about that. Long story short, I ended up connecting up with a corporate management leadership training company that used a lot of creative arts. So it really combined skills. And that was 27 years ago. And so since then, I've worked, as you heard, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of companies and tens of thousands of leaders all around the world. And I'm a student of human behavior. So I was always looking at patterns. It turns out that the best leaders all do certain things in common and all the bad leaders do certain things in common or don't do certain things in common. And so my work, hence cracking the leadership code, is what are those things and how can we help people to learn these skills? Because we're all on this learning curve of becoming better leaders. It is a lifelong process. And my goal is to help to shorten the journey and help accelerate people's learning curves. Because I think inside of us, we realize we want to be better. We want to be more impactful, have more of a, a purpose in the world and, and live that purpose and live out our potential. And my goal is to really help people to live out their potential on a more effective, impactful, and frequent daily basis, whether that's at home, at work, and everywhere. Well, I love that you shared your why there, Alam, because that's big for us. And in fact, we're one of our, our strategic partners and sponsors of the show is the Why Institute. And just hearing your powerful story there of why it, you know, it resonates with you. I love that you shared that for me. And, and then I'll let Ira share his too. My why is all about contributing toward creating healthier connections between people and work. And now it's also the future work. And the reason that resonates with me and is my why is because I noticed growing up, most of the adults in my life, they hated work. They hated their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't too many of them that when we got together, were saying, I can't wait to get back in on Monday and work on this project or work with this person. It was usually, I can't stand the work, can't stand the coworkers. My boss is terrible. And there just was a lack of connection there. So in particular, as the, the conversation unfolds today, I'm really interested in hearing your work around connection aspect of leadership and how they can do that. But I'll send it over to Ira to share some of his why too. Yeah, thanks, Jason. And and thanks. What, what a powerful introduction. It's great to know that. I actually, we, we share some history there. Talk about that. Actually, my, my grandfather and, and two of his siblings had actually left Russia Eastern Europe, Lithuania, and the others had not. And so we, we, we did lose them. We don't, we don't know what happened, but we can only surmise, you know, what happened. So some similar paths there. But as far as my why, it's, it's to help others find the better way to challenge the status quo and to be extraordinary. And ultimately, that's what we're doing with the show. I mean, that's we're, we're sort of living the why, you know, through this. And, and Jason and I share, you know, a lot about that. But as you said, there's there's just nine different whys. People approach life differently. They 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 want to get out of life, you know, what's meaningful to them and, and in the way that they want to live. And how is that shaped? And so I'm with you. I actually I don't I don't think you knew this or, or you might have if you'd done any background on me. My my background, you, you went through a, a MFA. I mean, I went through a dental school. You know, and and then end up this, and and the part that fascinated me the most was understanding people's behavior. You know, and so I spent the last twenty eight years. I started a company, did a lot of pre, a lot of assessments, pre employment leadership assessments, but it's mostly helping 
you know, people thought it was about making sure we hired the right people, but mostly it was make sure you know who the person was. And ultimately is you have these tools of, of you know, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction about self-reflection and, and you should, you should that, that, you know, not, not only why do you do the things that you do, but, you know, understanding where your place in the world is and which gets into emotional intelligence. But you mentioned something that I, I want to, before we get into the connections, you talked about some traits that were common that you found in, in your studies and in your experience, some traits that were common with leaders that are successful universally, doesn't matter what they're leading, but, and then some traits that are unsuccessful or, or common in unsuccessful people. Real briefly, can you share some of those? And then we can talk about how do we, you know, how do, how do you, use, how are they using those or how, how do we overcome those? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So I'd say in general, I'm mean, kind of starting at a, at a bigger picture level. One of the differences between, we'll just call them lousy leaders and great leaders, is that lousy leaders tend to have this me orientation, right? Again, so it's about, I need you to do this. And if you look at why, their why is because I said so. That's why, because I'm in charge. That's why. And anyone who has, you know, been parents of teenagers, <laughs> that doesn't work with teenagers. It doesn't work with employees. It doesn't work with anyone. And so this whole sense of where are you in the orbit, and do you see yourself as the commander in chief? You know, be, and again, I call that in my book the old school style of leadership that worked to a point when there weren't a whole lot of other options. That is not the world that we live in now. So that is one big thing is the difference between our kind of self-orientation or others. And one hint, by the way, you can tell if someone where the orientation is, is listen for the pronouns they use, right? Is it about we and the team or is it about me and I and I achieved this and my people did this for me? And just start to notice that because language is a real window into people's thinking. So that's one thing that I'd consider it, it overall. When it comes to some of the big trends around what are what makes the best leaders, frankly, it's care. It's the sense of caring about people as human beings, first and foremost, you know, as the three-dimensional living flesh and blood humans full of everything that we are, messy and all, rather than just what can you do for me? What is the, your little two-dimensional position in this org chart box? You know, the theologian Martin Buber talked about the difference between the I-it relationship and the I-thou relationship. And I think what, and it's funny, when, I, when I've interviewed many great leaders, what I find is most of them do this intuitively. It's sort of part of who they are that they just realize valuing, esteeming, respecting people as human beings is just part of their makeup. Now, can you learn some of this? Sure, you can learn it if you are committed to learning, just like can you be coached if you want to be. So I'd say those are a couple of places to start from, and we can certainly dig in deeper as we go. Yeah, it's so interesting that you, you talked about the I and the we, because I remember, and again, some of, as, as you suggested, might be intuitive, the, my, in my dental practice. I mean, I, for most of the 15 years that I had a private practice, it was, I, I own, it was me. I, I was the owner, and then I brought in a few associates, but I was still the boss. I still had the title. Except when I when people talked about what you were doing, I always talked about we. It was it was always about we did this, and they go, "Oh, I didn't know you had a partner." No, it, it's just me. I mean, but I have a team. I couldn't have done it without the team. And it's it's so you know to to me, I just took it for granted that that was just natural. And you know, other people were 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 still looking at that more traditional identification. Well, you're the boss. 
I mean, you can do what you want. I, I wish I was the boss and I can control everything. And that's just, just not it. And Elaine, looking at kind of your, your model, before we get into the three C's, mm-hmm. in your book, you talk about that there are kind of three obstacles to communicating well. And we were just talking about effective communication. Let's dig in on that a little bit because it still feels like communication is a huge part of what we are we're tasked with and that we're struggling with as leaders. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, but now that we have more people maybe not working together physically in like an office location, that that might be more challenging. So what are those three obstacles to communication and how do we get past those? Yeah. So, and the fact is having more tools doesn't make it easier. It just means we have more tools and we have to learn how to use them. So the biggest challenge to communication is the fact is we've got to, first of all, recognize that the goal of communication is never communication. That's not the goal. That's the means. That's the vehicle. The goal of communication is to create mutual and shared accurate understanding. And the reason that's so important is because understanding becomes the platform on which we're going to make all decisions. So if we have a solid foundation of understanding, we can make really good decisions. We're going to get really good results. If we have a wobbly tippy or really broken down foundation, we're going to make some poor decisions and end up with some poor results. So as leaders, we have to be vigilant about making sure that all of us are aligned in, are we all understanding this? And what makes that so hard is the fact is understanding in its strictest sense is that you see things the way that I see them and I see them the way you see them. And the fact is that can never be a hundred percent because I don't live in your head and you don't live in my head. And what is crystal clear to me and seems so blatantly obvious is not crystal clear to you because you're not me. I mean, how many of us have ever said things like, well, I sent the email. They should know what to do. Or don't they realize what a dumb process we have here? It's like, we say these things like, no, because they're not you. And we can't assume that people are there. So the first gap is having to close, understand this gap between who am I and who are you? And what are the tools that I can do to ensure that I'm doing an understanding check to close that, to get as close to 100% as we possibly can. So that's one piece. The next piece has to do with the fact that there's a lack of shared context, right? Because you are in your own head. And so you can then edit out all the stuff that is not relevant. And it's so clear what it is relevant. Whereas other people have everything swimming around. And unless you can do a really good job, really good job of framing the context for the messaging, for the communication, you're going to be competing with every other bit of noise in the system. And that is just really challenging. And then, of course, the third piece is just information overload. You know, people don't need more information. They need more insight, right? We are drowning in information. I mean, I talk to people, you know, how many people do we know get an average of two to 300 emails in their inbox every single day? How can you possibly process that information and get anything else done, right? And so it's so interesting, you know, the Bain did a study not too long ago, showed that people spend an average of, I think it's 63% of their days either in meetings or processing emails, right? doesn't leave a whole lot of other time to get other things done because it's just the, I mean, and technology makes it so it's so easy at the click of a button. I can send an email to 200 people. I can reply all. And you just think about the clutter that that creates. And so in the midst of all of that, when people start to feel overwhelmed, that leads to a fear response. So that means that the neocortex starts to shut down. The amygdala starts to activate. And then people are not able to do their best thinking. They're not able to be innovative and they're just trying to get through it, get through the day. And so if you wonder why, if you go into so many workplaces, 
why it seems that like you were saying before, Jason, why does everyone seem to hate their jobs? I mean, I've walked around a lot of offices and it's like, it's like zombies on parade. This is just not, this is not a fun place to be because people feel like it's drudgery. You know, we have created the, you know, if it's, it's if it's an office cubicle space, it's like the knowledge work coal mines that we're dealing with. People are just, I just got to kind of process through and get all this. So those are the big three things that get in the way. Again, just to recap, it's the say versus mean versus here, kind of closing that gap. It's the lack of context. And the third one is just information overload. As you're, as you're talking and we, we talk about, well, all of those things, I was just rereading this. It was something that I was introduced to a couple of years ago. We, we all heard about the black swan, you know, effect our, you know, especially with the financial crisis in 2008, but Nassim Tlaib has a model, if you're familiar with it, about anti-fragility. And, you know, that we, we talk about when things are too fragile, that when they, when they drop, they shatter. Mm-hmm. And we, we tend to, mic, you know, organizations and, and, and as people, we want to be predictable. So we're trying to micromanage things and we try to create this roadmap and these tunnels. And, and it, it ultimately, it doesn't do well when, when there's a shock to the system. And when there were less shocks or there was more time between shocks, we were okay. And so he, he talked about having an anti What's the opposite of fragile? And it's not resilient. Okay, because resi- even if you're resilient, you eventually break. So anti-fragile is how do you, how do you, even when there's a shock, you don't, you may break, but you then coalesce and come back stronger. So it's like th- dropping a porcelain cup and instead of it shattering all over the steps or the floor, it actually would bounce back and be, and be stronger when it comes back. Behind all that was this thing of randomness. And, and as you were talking, it just, brought all this back in is that we have this norm that we want to go back to normal and leaders are trying to bring back to normal leaders are trying to bring back everybody to the workplace but that the context of that is is that predictability and certainty was normal but what if randomness not just uncertainty but randomness was normal which it seems to be the case of how do we learn and thrive and what's leadership look like and how does that change the context I know we're going down a completely other road, but the reality is, is that we still have people that are still trying to go back to normal. This is how it worked for 10 years, for 20 years. Let's, let's see if we can calm down. But the environment, that context that we lived in is in a sea of randomness and uncertainty. You've touched on something really important here. I think this sense of what happened, and again, to speak to, to name it is the, you know, it's now we're just, just hitting the three-year anniversary of this pandemic, right? when it started is that, you know, and I love the idea of this kind of shattering use because in some ways the collective psyche, and it's not just the workplace, it's societal psyche. There's been a crack that can't get like Humpty Dumpty. You can't put it all back together again, because I think what people experienced was suddenly, well, first of all, we can, in fact, the first week this happened, I went and I went to the dictionary, I looked up this word and the word, the definition was a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And he guesses what the word was? It was trauma, right? I was like, okay, I think this qualifies. And so if you think about it, collectively, globally, we've all experienced this global traumatic event. Now we've all dealt with it in different ways. It's affected different people in different ways. I'm not saying it's all the same, but all of us have had a, a piece of that. And because of that, people stepped back and questioned because literally life and death were in our faces, right? This is a potentially deadly disease, especially at the beginning, uncertainty. There were no vaccines. What's going on? 
And so people started to question the bigger things in life, right? That if we just stay on the hamster wheel of certainty and just kind of continue on with normal, 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 I don't ask those questions. Just, you know, live for the weekend, keep on going, do your thing, spend, spend. And then people went, oh, time out. And they had to rethink all of this. And suddenly, oh, I can't go back to the office. Now I have to work from home. You know what? I don't miss my commute. Wow. You know what? I kind of like seeing my kids for dinner every night. And some people are like, oh, I can't stand being at home. <laughs> Whatever it was, it was different. It was different. And so suddenly when we say like, everyone's back in the office now, we're all back in five days a week or four, you know, we're mandating this because we're, because what that does is it creates a sense of certainty for the boss, for the executives. But what it does is it hamstrings the certainty of people who have now had a certain taste. You know, they used to say like, once people have had a taste of Paris, they don't want to go back on the farm, right? And so if you think about it, the autonomy that was created for a lot of people telling me I have to give that up and go back to the office because, and, and plus you want me to commute into the office so that I can be in front of a computer screen all day, typing emails or being on Zoom calls from the office, which any you know, self-respecting adult would say, I could do this as easily from home. And so we're now in this position where if we are asking the questions of, how many days back in the week in, in the office do we need to be? We are asking the wrong question. And I think that leaders need to kind of get out of this binary, normal, not normal, old way, new way. That's very binary as opposed to what's going to work moving forward. I had a chance. So I, so I write for Forbes every month and I got a chance to interview David Rock, who is the founder of the Neuro Leadership Institute. And so he's got this whole model called the SCARF model that we dissected. And it's the SCARF model about what drives people's needs. And it includes things like status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. That's hence the scarf. And where we got to in this conversation was it isn't about right and wrong. It's about ultimately the questions we should be asking is how can people be as engaged in po as possible and as productive as possible? And it might turn out that is not the answer to that question may not be a one size fits all within your company. It may have to get broken down all the way to the team and or the individual level. And so the question that I am challenging leaders continuously is, are you willing to let go of the conformist one size fits all solution, which by the way, never really worked that well anyway. Are you willing to let go of that and start to innovate? But to do that, you need to have a level of trust and frankly, I'll say maturity of treating people like adults in a way to create solutions that will work in this new shattered environment. You know, Alain, as you're speaking there, it reminds me back to when I, I worked primarily as a psychologist in schools, and we ran across this problem with reading, where it pretty much was one size fits all in school. Here's the reading program, and great, it works for 50, 60% of the kids. For the other kids, sorry about your luck, but this is the way that we teach. And what we learned over time scientifically was we needed to bring in multi-tiered systems of supports primary, secondary, tertiary levels of intervention to design the right reading curriculum and interventions for groups of kids, but then also individual kids who might need that individual support. And I've been a major proponent of that type of model, the multi-tiered systems of supports being in place in organizations as well, because we may not be working on reading skills, but we are definitely working on leadership skills, we're working on what's often called the soft skills of how do we work and collaborate together, which is one of your other C's in your model. And so I love that you shared there that, that example of the tiered system approach, because I think 
that is going to be the future. And we are going to need technology to help us deliver the right types of learning, the right types of skill development in order to do more of that tailoring and get away from the out of the box cookie cutter type approaches that we've taken to developing people and helping teams be productive and cohesive together. And we need to take a short break. We actually, I can't believe that we are at the time that we are. Great, great. What a fantastic conversation with Elaine Hunkins. Uh, We're talking about cracking the leadership code and we're sort of all over the board, but that's, I guess, the nature of randomness in today's world. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, and you nailed it, by the way. As you talked about it, we talk about remote work, hybrid work, in office, going back to the office, going back to normal. And the word that is out there, but we seem to forget about is flexibility. And flexibility also means who's it flexible. It doesn't mean three days, three days and two days, four days and one day, four day work week. Oh, we're flexible. But someday, sometimes four day work week works for people. Some days a five day in the office works. Sometimes zero days in the office is going to be what what is demanded. And that's going to be an organizational challenge. And that's what we're talking about, how to crack the leadership code in, in the future of work. We're going to take a really short break. We will be back, continue this conversation. Hang in there. We'll see you in two minutes. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying. And unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not-so-distant future. But for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock. And there's no get-out-of-jail-free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion, a coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers. Then knowing your why is the first step to untap potential, to focus, to breakthroughs, a coach Who's looking for a better way? Are you that coach? Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Today, we're talking about cracking the leadership code. We've got Elaine Hunkins here as I trip over that each time. And what a wonderful conversation we had in the first segment of the show. And we're going to continue that. I just want to, we, we talked about trauma and stress and, and everything that was going on. I'm a huge fan. I, I remember when it first came out futurist in the late 1960s, early 70s, Alvin Toffler. And he wrote about future shock. 
And he talked about the, the, the shattering stress and disorientation that individuals would feel to being subjected to so much change in a short period of time. And that's, you know, we, there, there's so many ways to describe what our environment is. And people are trying to control the environment rather than respond to their environment. They're trying to, to micromanage that change and we can't do it. But in doing so, you had the three C's and we, we hit on one of them. Why don't we dig a little bit more into the, the other two C's of your yeah, model? Sure, happy to. You know, it's funny you talk about Alvin Toffler because one of the, one of his, you know, in 1980, so this is uh, obviously dating it now almost, what, 20, 40, 43 years. This is when he said the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who can not read and write. It's going to be those who are unable to unlearn, learn, and relearn. And so I think about so much of us as leaders today, we have a lot of unlearning to do. We have a lot of relearning to do. And the reason is we're holding on to, frankly, a lot of what I call just old school industrial age leadership habits, because that's what our leaders modeled for us. And the way we learn isn't by someone telling us, it's by what they do and how they model that. And so it's really, so this whole, we talked earlier, you know, before the break around that kind of me-centric commander in chief. Well, most of us ex have experienced that with someone in our life or many people in our lives. Many of our parents lead the family that way because I said so, that's why. And so we internalize that in our neurology. And so it's hard to turn around and do that. So if we look at the other two C's, we talked about the three C's being connection, communication, and collaboration. I want to go back to like that first C because in some ways this is the core because look, at the end of the day, I don't care what industry you are in, whether it's technology, retail, pharmaceuticals, doesn't matter in that first and foremost, you are in the people business because everything gets done in and through other human beings. And also recognizing that if you have a formal leadership role, whether that's frontline supervisor, mid-level director, executive vice president, CEO, is that the people who you are leading are projecting something onto you. It isn't just you as the person. It isn't just Ira and Jason. It's the role. You are stepping into a role, much in the same way that, you know, every January we inaugurate a new president every four years in the United States. And this whole, we enroll and we de-roll, right? The old president gets on Marine One hair and leaves. It's this whole sense of role. And you have to understand that role is bigger than you personally. So the first piece of connection has to do with credibility. You know, my mentors, Jim Cousins and Barry Posner, who wrote The Leadership Challenge, which is an amazing book now in its seventh edition, talked about the fact that if around credibility, they said, if you don't believe the messenger, you won't believe the message. And so a big part of how that starts is about you being the role model, you living out the behaviors that you would like others to live out and that are important to you. And so when I'm training and coaching leaders to the first thing you can do to increase your credibility is show up on time. It's that simple and it's that difficult. And why is that? It's because it is the easiest thing in the world to measure. You're either here or you're not. Again, everything else after that is commentary. But if you're not there, you are sending a very clear message. Something else was more important than you were. So the first thing is about showing up on time. The next level of credibility would be about being really conscious and intentional about what am I saying I'm going to do? And then do I actually do it? I mean, my definition of accountability, I like to kind of pull from the origin, which is accounting. You know, in accounting, the world of accountability is you've got your, you know, inflows and outflows, right? Income expenses is that a balance sheet, the two sides have to line up. Well, in the world of leadership, accountability is what do I say I'm going to do and what did I actually do? And those need to be in account. That is accountability. And so we can have a whole bunch of excuses and shame and blame around it, but at its core, it's just as simple as 
Did you do it? Yes. Check. Did you not do it? And that becomes now a learning moment. What got in the way or whatever that might be. So those are the come the big two pieces around cre- credibility. And that starts to, that's the first, that's sort of the ticket to entry for connection. But then the next piece is really important as well. And that is around empathy. Now, empathy is simply defined as showing people that you understand them and care how they feel. So there's two parts to that. There's what we will call kind of cognitive empathy. Like I can understand your position from a cognitive point of view, that's cognitive empathy, but then there's affective or emotional empathy, which is I can, I can feel that, you know, kind of be pulled or drawn towards you in that moment. Now, as I share that definition, I'm sure you're all hearing this and going, that's really simple. Of course I do that. I'm a human being. And you do do that in some places and with some people. The fact is we are wired as human beings to have empathy for others, but we don't have equal amounts of empathy for all others. Turns out that the people in our immediate empathy circle are the people who we feel most affection for. So immediate family members, children, close friends, right? Like you think about, I would do anything for these people, right? But as we get further out of that circle, people start to feel a bit more distant. So imagine then people being more distant and now put that into the mix of a work context where you also now have deadlines. You've got pressure to achieve certain results. And suddenly our ability to empathize for other people, we start to move away from that I-thou relationship into that I-it relationship. What are you, where's the thing I need from you? And it becomes very, it can become very transactional as opposed to relational. And if you think about how many of your relationships are in fact transactional. And what can you do to to address that? And what I have found in my research is that the two biggest barriers to being able to lead with empathy, and by the way, our people sniff this out. They know when we don't care. We can say, oh, I care about you. But if we're not demonstrating that actively, they don't get it at all. And they know it. And you know it sort of, but don't want to deal with it. So here's the couple things that I would do. That's two big barriers to leading with empathy. Number one is time. It's like, I'm busy. Because again, you've got all your stuff to get done. Realize that time with your people is not an expense. It is an investment. It's an investment that is designed to pay dividends. And until you reframe your thinking around spending time with people as an investment, as opposed to a cost, you're going to be putting out energy that's just like, can we get through this already? Let's go. Right. So time is the one. All right. And the other thing is that, frankly, a lot of people who are in organizations aren't that comfortable with the messiness of the fact that we're human beings. I mean, it's amazing how many people who become CEOs came in and were CFOs. And one of the things, look, we love numbers in the business world. And why is that? Because numbers are really neat and tidy and clean, right? You show up to a meeting, seven is always one more than six and one less than eight. Whereas, you know, when Jason comes to the meeting tomorrow, who knows what's going to show up, right? So just realizing that, you know, people are messy. And I think what threatens a lot of leaders is they think they have to somehow be psychologists. I know I'm here with a couple of psychologists. You don't have to be a psychologist. What you have to be is a caring human being and just to take the time. And it's not as much time as you think, but to, to build in the time of, hey, how are you? How was your weekend? What's, and, and to really listen and give people a chance to settle themselves. And I won't go into all the brain science of what this does, but what that does is it creates a sense of psychological safety and so that people can be present because until people feel safe, and now I'll get into collaboration a little bit, people cannot possibly do their best work if they are kind of living, walking on eggshells. And unfortunately, the research would say that most people are. So 
Deloitte did a study a few years ago found that 61% of employees in the US feel the need to wear a mask. And I don't just mean an N95, I mean wear a mask, put on a wall because they don't feel safe really being themselves. And if you have ever been in that situation, you know what it's like. And that what that does is that creates a low trust, low connection, and ultimately a low performance culture. So that's just a start of that kind of kind of covers the big pieces around connection, it's credibility and empathy. So I'll, I'll stop there for a moment because I've been talking about connection for a while. Yeah, the the empathy part is so big. I mean, right now, especially with how many anxieties folks have around, am I still going to have a job? Is artificial intelligence going to take away the job that I have? Am I going to have to reskill and upskill? And so, I mean, I can absolutely see where empathy has already been important as we dealt with, you know, three years of COVID. But now even moving forward, we're moving into major disruption and change in terms of what are even jobs? Is it going to be, you know, dispensed more in terms of here are tasks that need to get done and skills that people have? Here's the things that artificial intelligence will do on its own, things that people will do with artificial intelligence, and then the things that people on their own will create. And so that empathy piece is so huge. And that gets into the collaboration piece that we finish up with in your framework. Tell us some of the, the insights and secret recipe with the collaboration, because as we talked about, it's an everywhere workplace world now that our friends at Avanti always talk about. So how do we get people to work collaboratively all around the world and potentially at different times during the day? Absolutely. So there's a few pieces to collaboration and, and my work. And this, again, the work came out of not just me sitting and writing. It was working with thousands of leaders over hundreds of groups over the course of a dozen, two decades, right? So a lot of time. And what I found were these four key themes that were in place in great collaborative, high-performing environments. And one we touched on already, which is safety, right? Not just physical safety, but also emotional safety, psychological safety, you know? And there's a lot of things that you can do to help create safety. Maybe the top two is as a leader, is are you willing to be vulnerable to a certain level? I'm not saying share your deepest, darkest secrets, but just to be vulnerable. Then the next piece around that too, would be make sure that on your teams that you give everyone equal amounts of airtime to speak, right? Otherwise, some people will dominate. So there's safety. The next thing is around energy. But the fact is, what are things that you do that create more energy for your team? What are the things that drain energy? I know we don't have a lot of time to go into the details of that now, but I write all about you know, 15 different things you can do to create energy. For example, if you know you have a big meeting or, and it's going to last for three hours, do you schedule a break or do you just keep going? The fact is, humans can't really go more than 80 minutes at a stretch without needing to stretch, buy, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever it is. Don't compete with biology because you're going to lose every time. So that's energy. Third piece is around purpose. You know, do people understand the big picture, the why? We've talked about why already a lot today, but you know, what's my reason for doing this? Do they see how what they're doing actually matters beyond just the job itself? And then the fourth piece is around ownership. Are you able to create an environment where people have autonomy to make their own decisions and see their own progress? Because it turns out that making progress towards a meaningful goal is the number one thing that motivates people to keep moving. So safety, energy, ownership, and purpose. Again, I'm giving you kind of big, broad strokes, but those are the, the elements that make up for a more collaborative and impactful work environment. No, that's perfect, Alan. And, and it's a perfect segue into our new segment that we're going to do, Hopes and Fears. I kind of let you know before we went live today that we're going to do this, and then we're going to wrap things up. But we want to hear what are your hopes and fears for the future? Because we're certainly hearing from a lot of people that, there's a lot of people that are optimistic about the future and what AI means, but we also have a lot of people that are very fearful. So what are your hopes and fears on the future? 
Great questions. Oh my gosh. So around hope. So just in full disclosure, so I have a son who's about to turn 19 and my daughter just turned 16. And as I look at these younger generations and I look at younger generations, I'm hopeful when I see young people. My And my hopes are that there's a level of emotional intelligence and also a willingness to stand up for just things that are wrong. Just like, no, that's not okay. And I think that if you look at just as we are getting more we're on this journey of human rights, like more and more that people should be valued on all levels for all differences. And I love to see the, the course of history seems to be going and it's a long, slow arc, but we're going in that direction. So I have great, great hopes that we're going to continue to go in that direction. So that's a, that's a great hope for me. And I would say on the fear side, I continually get struggle. It's like humans, we're not very good at looking more than maybe a, a month out. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But the sense of you know, I think about things like climate change. I think about these things that are going to suddenly like, where were we for the last 30 years, 40 years? You know, Jimmy Carter was in the White House. They were putting up solar panels. I mean, this is not new news. And so I just am concerned. So my fears are that we're not able as a species to really think long term. Well, we can think long term, but can we somehow bring, harness our collective will to act long-term as a group. And certainly in the US, you've got these election cycles that make it very difficult to do any investment in long-term infrastructure, for example. So that's some of my big fears around our inability to think and act long-term. We, we call that around here addiction to certainty. And our, our friend, John Sinai, who is just on, and hopefully we're, we're gonna have him back again, he's a future strategist, talks about our brains are familiarity machines. And again, if we think too far out, it's too different. So yeah. let's just go back to our cocoon. One last question, almost last question. Then we're going to go to our lightning round. We always ask this question to everybody because we cover so much, but you may have had some ideas that you wanted to share. Was there anything that we didn't ask you that we should have? Yes. And I would say that would be, the question would be, what's the number one thing that if a leader could only do one thing, what should they do? to accelerate their own growth and development. I got one last question for you. Do you? <laughs> what, what would that what, what would that be, Ira? Yeah, what's one what's one thing that a leader can do to, you know, make a significant change? Yeah, and it all starts with feedback. It's and I'm and I'm, I'm sure other people have said this too, but it's so powerful is to be open and realize that whether or not you're getting feedback from other people, they're already thinking that. So why wouldn't you want to know the truth? And so being open and receptive to hearing, hey, how can I be better? What could I do? It's such a game changer because without that information, you're working on a data point of N equals one as opposed to really, if you're trying to lead other people, they're the people who you want to know from, not you, it's from them. That's brilliant. Absolutely love that. And that's a perfect way to get right into our lightning round. A lot as we wrap up today, I can't believe we're already to the end. But lightning round, just going to ask you a few questions here to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. Sure. So let's start with this one. Favorite band or favorite song for you? I'm going to go with favorite band, The Beatles, just because they are just kind of songbook of life. And I keep coming back to them. Love it. And you know, that's actually a first. I can't believe it's taken this long to actually get to The Beatles. No way. First guest who has listed The Beatles as their favorite band. Oh my God. And they've so, influenced everybody. I mean. I know. Absolutely. I'm shocked it's taken this long. So you win the award for the Beatles being the first one. Yes. All right. How about this one? There's one person in the history of the world that you could meet. Who would it be? I thought about this one because I know you guys asked this question. So here's, I'm going to go, and part of it is I've been reading a lot of the other books too. 
George Washington. And I'll say why. So interesting thing about George Washington, you know, he's the model for the U.S. presidency. And everything says that he's the glue that basically held everything together, that somehow everyone said he's the only one who could be president. He's the only one who could do this. And all of his personal correspondences between him and Martha and everyone have been burned. And there's this and there's this huge myth around who the man itself, what, who he was. And somehow I just I don't know anything about what he would really be like. So I just get to spend probably more than like a dinner, though. I'd like to spend a couple of weeks kind of hanging out with him to kind of. I love it. That's another first. That's the first we've gotten. George Washington also. But I absolutely love that one. And then look at that. a lot. One more because you're so good on your feet. You're the first one we ever did hopes and fears with. I'm going to pitch a brand new lightning round question here <laughs> to you. But I have a feeling knowing you and how you've described things today, you're going to have something right on the tip of your tongue. Worst pet peeve that you see other people do. Here's one. Yeah. Uh, here's a pet peeve. Worst pet peeve is when people get up and say, come on, folks, just stay with me. We're going to be done here really soon. It's a pet. This, think about that. Like, why? If you say you want to be done soon, all you're saying is this sucks. And just like it's root canal. <laughs> you know, sorry. Sorry. Uh, but right. You know, you he know, probably like, had to say that a lot. Exactly. This will be over soon. It's like, it's just that frame, like don't frame things in a way that put people into a negative. Same thing with like, I know it's after lunch. So you're all falling asleep right now. That does nothing. So it's this whole throwing out, I guess the, the big umbrella here is throwing out these presuppositions to assume that's how other people are feeling that puts them in a negative state. It is a pet peeve because it is kind of small, but it's not small. <laughs> I can tell we touched the nerve there, which was the point of the question. Thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing about that, Alon. And for those who are wanting to learn more about Alon and his work that he does, uh, you can go to alonhunkins.com to learn more about that. And are they open to connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Absolutely. And you can contact me through the website. There are some spots there. But yeah, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. If I can be of service to you in any way, I'd be happy to connect. Thank you. Perfect. And thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And, and on the pet peeves, I, I'm, I participate in a meeting about twice a month, and it always starts with, I know we don't want to be here, so let's, let's try to move through this as quickly as possible, which absolutely <laughs> sets the tone. <laughs> hey, thanks very much. It was really, I, I, I could have just sat back and listened for another hour or so or more. So hopefully we can have you back. Love to. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank Appreciate you. It. That one really did go by quickly. In fact, it wasn't until you were like, oh, we need to go to the break real quick that I realized how far we went in. But real quick, Ira, what were, were some of the big takeaways and aha moments for you today from Alon? Yeah, I, I took a couple thing, notes down. And then again, there were, there were just so many. I, 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 it was actually one of the things he said at the end was about what his hope was. And it, and it was hopeful when he sees young people. And I, I feel that way too. And I think that's a huge change because I think from our parents and, and even a lot of my peers being an older baby boomer are fearful of the kids. They fear the young people. We're looking at, you know, looking at young people as the hope for the future, not just that they can be the hope, but that they are the hope. And they are, it's amazing that despite everything going around, a lot of them are hopeful. Absolutely. And you know, with my four boys at home, they keep me optimistic and inspired because I see a lot of the cool stuff they get to do at school and a lot of the cool things that they're interested in that they do on their devices. I'm like, there's going to be some really cool inventions and things that make life better for all of us to come out of this wave of disruption that's going on. For me, oh, okay. sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and the other quote was, don't compete with biology. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was a good one. That was a really good one. A couple quotes for me too on that one was language is a window into someone's thinking. I think that's a great mindset to have in terms of, of language. And then another one he shared was that the goal of communication isn't communication. It's shared understanding. That was a big aha moment. And then one more, and we actually had a listener who chimed in on this one when he was talking about, we've turned knowledge work into coal mines in a lot of workplaces. And I thought that was brilliant that, yes, we've got to improve employee experience for folks and create those cultures. But until next time, we want to thank you, Googleization Nation, for tuning in today. My name is Jason Cochran. And if you haven't reached out and subscribed to the show, or followed us, we'd love for you to do so on your favorite podcast platform or also on YouTube. We're growing our, our audience there as well. So until next time, I'll look forward to seeing you next week. And and I too can relate to that coal mine uh, reference because I grew up in a coal mining town and my father was actually, or my father-in-law was actually a mine inspector in coal mine. I absolutely can relate to that. I'm Ira Wolf. Special thanks to Y Institute for partnering with us again and sponsoring this episode. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>